This is episode 5-0 of Free as in Freedom. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. And so, Karen, we've been threatening for a long time that we're going to do the FOSDEM We've talked about it so much. And so <laughs> I've decided how we're going to do it. This is the decision, and I made an executive decision based on how I listen to podcasts. I don't like when the podcast makes reference to something that I don't have. Uh, I, I hate, for example, and, and Linux Outlaws does it sometimes, and it annoys me when they do it, not very often. But other, uh, I stop listening to other shows that do this all the time, where they're a video cast, and then they release it as a podcast, and they talk about things on the video, and then you're just, just useless if you listen to it as, an, uh, as just audio. So I, I don't want to be in the situation where we're telling people, oh yeah, if you saw this Fosdem talk we're talking about, that's, we can talk about it. So we're going to include the Fosdem audio, and Dan has graciously agreed, right, good producer Dan, has graciously agreed. You'll hear his voice uh, at the end of this segment telling you where to fast forward to if you want to skip the talk and just hear our comments after it. So those of you that haven't heard the talk, you just keep listening straight through. Um, we're gonna do a couple announcements first and then get into the talk. Um, but those of you that wanna to skip to it, when you hear Dan telling you what to skip to, skip ahead and you'll just hear us talking again. You won't have to hear the speaker. But before we get to that, we have an announcement we wanna make, something that appeared on Conservancy's website recently. Yes, so we participated in this um, DMCA process. So basically, th this law was passed called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act in the uh, early 2000, like it was in the beginning of 2000, it was passed and signed into law. And it has various different provisions, uh, but one of the provisions that has been complained about a lot in our community that many of our listeners may have heard about already is this idea of a prohibition on circumvention techniques designed to circumvent copy protection. So if you get a device, whether a device or a game or anything, right? So if you get a CD and it has mechanisms to make it hard to rip that audio off that CD, you are f prohibited by law, and actually it's a felony. It's a criminal. It's a criminal penalty right. for trying to break that encryption and disseminating information about how to break that encryption or otherwise circumvent the copy protection technique. Um, and early when this law first came out, people pointed out that the, the, some of the CDs, you could uh, you, uh, basically a magic marker was an issue because you could use a magic marker on the CD and you could circumvent the copy protection on the CD by putting it by writing a magic marker in a certain place. And it was a felony to tell people where to mark on the CD, how to, how to turn off the copy protection with a magic marker on the CD. And so because I, I, think, I think there was at least some sense that this was a little bit overreaching, they designed the law a process whereby the copyright office can grant, uh, basically from the executive branch, exceptions to this rule. So that certain types of circumvention can be permitted if the copyright office makes a ruling that it's exempt from that particular part of the law, which right. gets so, into what Karen right. was saying. And so now there's a period of time where the copyright office is seeking people to submit um, requests for for these exceptions. Um, and so the process that's happening now, or that just recently happened, is that you can say. In a in a very short five pages or less format, what that that you that you believe that an exception is warranted for a particular circumstance without giving the full legal um, 
discussion of that, which will come later. Right, and so so what what it, what we've done, uh, Conservancy, uh, which which we submitted uh, recently, and the, there's a link in the show notes. You can read on the website uh, the whole petition. It's called a petition to the Copyright Office to exempt specific devices and devices we. Right, but it's not a petition like a petition that people can sign. It's a pe- it's petitioning the office. Right. So Conservancy is the petitioner. It's kind of like a plaintiff, although it's not exactly, uh, it's not a lawsuit, so it's not a plaintiff, it's called the petitioner. Conservancy filed this thing to ask the Copyright Office. And we made a, uh, basically, obviously there are tons of devices that we at Conservancy believe people should be allowed to take mm-hmm. apart and learn about. I mean, we, we pretty much believe any de- de- electronic device you might buy, you should be allowed to But you to have this. to petition on something that you're an expert on. And not only that, you, you don't want to put, even if we, we're an expert on a lot of different things, but yeah, yeah, even yeah. so, we wouldn't want to petition on too many things because you don't want to be kind of out there too often, no. to, de- demanding too many things. And there so, are many, many people petitioning for many different yeah. exceptions. So we decided, because, because of our expertise on it, and also because we felt it was a place where um, people were un- unlikely to petition because they were unlikely to realize that there was a DMCA issue uh, was for the so-called smart televisions, which I don't like calling them that. I, I-, I insist that we put smart in quotes um, <laughs> because I-, I don't think it actually portrays what's going on because what's happening is it's a general purpose computer that's specifically programmed to not do certain things. So if you buy a TV now, it's usually running a Linux-based uh, or BusyBox Linux system of some sort and it prohibits you from doing all sorts of things, such as plugging in a USB drive and just playing AVI files off it. Even if you legitimately have those AVI files, if you buy a DVD of your own, um, oh, a DVD it's, has copyright protection as well, but if, if, you, if you have a public domain movie of some sort that is in an AVI file, or you have just a video, a training video you downloaded legitimately. I, 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 I uh, subscribed for a while to a poker training site and they gave me MP4 files that I could play. I can't actually plug a USB drive into a TV and play those because it won't play MP4 files that are on there because it's got various different restrictions. So if I were to modify the firmware on my TV so that I can do that, which I can do with things like Sam, it would be a criminal act. That's true. And and I used to I used to give a talk uh, where I where I would actually um, do a, a DMCA circumvention live to sort of show like and I just committed a felony. <laughs> um, uh, I, I I had to, I got permission from the FSF to do that in my FSF <laughs> talks. Uh, I actually, famously. Um, uh, that I, people might not know this, that um, that Bruce Perrins staged his being fired from HP by oh, on this issue. No, Do I people don't not know, know that. that. Okay, yeah. So, so Bruce Perrins gave a talk at a conference where he demonstrated how to circumvent um, copy protection in a presentation, committing a felony, and and HP. It was it was when he worked for HP. Huh. And uh, and HP fired him. I didn't know about Basically, that. Basically, the way the way he told the story was HP fired. It was going to fire him for this because he because they told him he couldn't do it, which was a very Bruce Perrin's hmm. thing to do, which was sort of silly because he probably could have just given the talk not as an HP talk or something, but instead he did it because probably because he wanted to quit anyway. But um, that's why it was me to do it because I was like I can do it and I won't get fired. I, I wrote to to RMS when I worked for FSF. I'm like, can I just do that? And he's like, oh yeah, yeah I did that. So that's <laughs> why I did it. Um, anyway. Um, so, but, but, uh, I think the important thing is, is that people not have this chilling effect of yeah. feeling like they're going to commit a crime if they do it, if they tell people how to do it or people outside the U S who can obviously do this cause they're not covered by DMCA. Yep. And I think we also have to give credit to our pro bono council who actually had the original idea to do this and drafted and, the, and did all the work. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, credit where credit is due and that, um, and so, uh, that's, uh, Tori Eklund and, um, Aaron Williamson, who, um, uh, listeners know, uh, who was previously a 
colleague of ours at the Software Freedom Law Center, and then went to IEEE and is now um, at Tor Eklund. Um, he led the charge on that, and so um, and so that was pretty cool. Okay, so uh, uh, oh, and I should more. probably also say that I'm a signatory on another one of these petitions um, for medical devices. Actually, so we'll link to that too, and I'll I'll send you the link, Bradley. Okay. <laughs> um, and so that that one was coming out of the Berkman Center. Um, yeah. So that's about it regarding the DMCA announcement. And Karen, we should probably move on to the other announcements uh, that we had regarding Conservancy and our work. So we have a special announcement. Yeah, so we try to fit in news when Conservancy and related organizations have news about something. We try to fit it in and give it to Dan ahead of time. Dan, this is the special moment when Dan gets to know things <laughs> before everybody else does because he gets this audio early. And we keep it under lock and key until it's announced. No, it's on, uh, well, SSH key, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and so Dan uh, Dan is going to put this in if it turns out this, uh, this thing uh, happens uh, and uh, it has happened. And what we are announcing, because it has happened, is copyleft.org. Yeah, so uh, most of our listeners probably know that I have the pride. Well, not most of our listeners, because we have a lot more listeners, I forget, than the ones mm -hmm. that hang on the IRC. The ones that hang on the IRC channel, no. All three of them. Uh, no, there's a lot, actually. There's like eight <laughs> in the IRC channel. Uh, multiple people have told me recently that they would really love a t-shirt that says, I'm one of the three. Yeah, you tell that. Anyway, so so they they, they know about uh, the work that I did initially in February 2014 to put pull together uh, basically all the material I've ever worked on that has tutorial about copyleft going back to 2003. So right, I, and you and and you did that in the context of the continuing legal education class most recently. That, went, uh, that we did in March the, with the the FSF with the FSF. did in March, and so those materials have gotten a few patches and been improved, and uh, basically we've decided to make that an actual project in the sense of a free software project. Uh, now it's a document uh, primarily rather than a code project, but our goal is to get other people to contribute to the tutorial materials available under Copyleft themselves about the uh, about learning how copyleft works and how to comply with it and how to understand it. But that's not all. <laughs> well, and we're doing it jointly with the FSF, which is right. great. And so the FSF is uh, contributing and uh, Conservancy's uh, funded. Initially, I was doing this sort of my own time. Conservancy's actually now letting some of my time go towards right. it. Well, and I would say also that it got much closer to the FSF during the time that the reason why I mentioned that continuing education class that was organized by the FSF in which we were the faculty for um, is that then it brought the, those processes together in a much closer way. Yeah, and, and so I had done it as a volunteer for the FSF initially, and just sort of on my own time since then, but now it's official activity of both the FSF and Conservancy that we're going to do. I am the editor-in-chief of the project, and uh, Denver, who works at Conservancy, actually wrote uh, a large piece, which I edited, of course, uh, a section about a uh, what we've wanted to do for years, which is a pristine example of complete corresponding source code. And this is really exciting because this is something that people ask us about a lot and it's very difficult to find something to point to. Well, the fact of the matter is is that most and I've said this privately in various places many times and now I'm saying publicly most of the compliant 
stuff out there is just barely compliant in the sense that they do the bare minimum of what the GPL requires. And of course, there's lots of violations too where they're not even doing what the GPL requires. But when they are doing what the GPL requires, there's so much effort to do the bare minimum. In fact, I've talked about this in the context of people gave Red Hat a hard time when they yanked back the, mm-hmm. the, the, the Git log of their kernel changes and just made a regular change log and said this was somehow violating GPL. The funny thing is by giving just a change log at all, they were doing a lot better than right. a lot of a lot of people because the, the, the section of GPL that requires a change log. All you have to do is change it. That's all you got to do. Whereas they were marking dates of multiple changes and saying the details and so forth. So so the thing is, is that people don't realize that when you get down to somebody who's right on the line, most of them are just barely complying. They're just doing the bare minimum. You know, it's like they're getting a C. And we wanted to show something where somebody got an A. Mm. And so... What we've gotten there is an example of this product from Think Penguin that they really worked hard to make sure it was compliance because they support the movement and they were part. Of, they wanted to be part of the FSFs. Uh, they could get a certification for the product respecting their freedom. So we decided to take that product and actually treat it as if it was a violator under investigation. Now we had a hypothesis it was going to come out pretty well, and the nice thing we found was not only did we find that they were in compliance, but we found a few problems too. They were really minor. Um, and, and we're working with them to get them resolved, but we actually report and discuss how those minor problems are really just minor. They're not really compliance issues. They're just convenience questions of, well, it would be a little easier to check their compliance if they did it this way rather than that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And hopefully it'll be a really good resource for people who are uncertain about how all this plays out. And uh, so check it out. And and uh, and we welcome contributions uh, if you want to edit. There's actually lots of editing work to be done, uh, copy editing and that sort of thing. So even if you don't know that much about copyleft, uh, you could do things like uh, one of the things I'm going to work on is is I, is I need to make a final decision about what voice uh, the product. Like some things like you sh- you and sometimes you do we and sometimes you do one. passive voice <laughs> and sometimes you and so that's inconsistent throughout the document because it's been pulled together from different materials. So I'll probably make a final decision on what type of uh, voice that should be in and. and what, what type of uh, whether you're using second person or first person, but you can plural. be part of that decision. Yeah, and, indeed, and 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 then go through and make the changes to consi- make it consistent, and also find places where there's text that's redundant, explaining the same thing, and merge it together because it was merged together from multiple sources over a period of years. So, like any code base, it needs that kind of work. So, uh, so join the project and get involved. Show notes, and there's an IRC channel. We have pound copy left uh, if you want to join that IRC channel uh, to talk about it. Plus, check out our press release. And yeah, there's a news item on Conservancy's and FSF's mm-hmm. website. So, uh, so that's pretty much all for that announcement. I think we should move on to uh, introduce the talk that we're including. So this is one. Can of the we talks. do it in a new segment? Uh, no. No. Why, all right. why do we have to do that? Oh, I just like the music. There's already going to be three segments. All right. You're right. You're right. Right. So, so the, sorry, the, everyone. Okay. So the fa- the the uh, the talk is uh, from FOSDEM 2014, which was a long time ago now, and it was really with the the call for papers being out now for FOSDEM 2015. So we should also I, there's another announcement we should make. Another announcement that that. Uh, that, that if you find this talk interesting, or other talks that we've played from Fox, or even this podcast interesting, you should submit a uh, presentation for our dev room at Fosdem 2015, which is coming up in February, or the last day of Jan- January 31st and February 1st. Um, or is it February 1st and February 2nd? I think it's February 1st and 2nd. Yeah, that's true. So, um, well, no, it was February 1st and 2nd. Let's look at a calendar. We should look at a calendar for such things. Um, yeah, it's going to be, yeah, January 31st and, and, oh, okay. and February 1st. 
Um, the the, uh, the dev room is on the Saturday, the first day, the 31st, uh, in Brussels, Belgium. And we are looking for people to submit talks. And the deadline is very soon. Uh, the, so you have to do it this week when you, upon hearing this uh, to uh, submit a talk. You don't need to be a lawyer. Yeah, in fact, if you read the call for participation, uh, there's a lot of detail in there about a talk we're going to discuss later um, might be a good example. Uh, so if you want to go preview it, the talks are actually all uh, uh, videos are on the website. And the quality um, is actually pretty good. Yeah. And so uh, so note that there was a lot of developers who presented. So you should definitely look at the past years and see what people presented. Uh, this this talk we're talking about today was actually from a lawyer, but uh, but a lot of the speakers weren't lawyers. And some of the most interesting talks were from non-lawyers in the, in the dev room. So basically what the topics we want to see people cover are anything related to a policy issue in your project where you make decisions about stuff other than technical issues about how the project is governed or how you decide who contribute who can contribute how they can contribute uh what they have to agree to if they contribute to that to sign a cla and on topic for the dev room and we would like to hear from people who have been involved in this uh, from a developer perspective yeah and as with previous years we'd like for the content to be somewhat at least intermediate level um, we're not interested in any introductory talks um, because, well, first of all, we're very limited on time this year. We only have one day that we're doing it. But um, but also there are a lot of different um, venues for those introductory talks and very few venues for in-depth discussion. And so we want to focus on, on, on that. And the, the thing is, though, that with regard to introductory versus intermediate, he, I think people have more expertise than they realize. I think a lot of people, what we don't want to see is an introduction to copyright issues right. for free software developers, uh, where you explain that, oh, it works fixed in a tangible medium. And if you have a slide that says that, uh, that's not ironic, um, it's probably too introductory. But if, if you've been working in this area with your project and you've been dealing with licensing questions for your project, you probably have the amount of expertise uh, necessary to submit something, uh, and you should. Uh, so we're looking for people who've actually worked in the area, which a lot of you have and probably don't even realize mm -hmm. it. Yeah. You've been, if you're, I, we meet a lot of people on our IRC channel who are the person who does all the licensing questions. You, then you probably are the type of person that should submit to this, submit to this track. And so with that, we should get in. So this is a talk from the previous year that yes. we want to talk about. Yeah, so this is a talk by Eileen Evans, which I, I thought was quite good, was, um, was a, a talk about copyleft versus permissive licensing and what effects that might have on communities and the longevity of projects. And so Eileen took some of the data that was available and showed um, you know, some charts. Now, both you and I were in the room Bradley. Yeah. So if so you listen to the, the Q&A section, both of us are, we're talking. <laughs> and also if you watch the video, you will see uh, both of us if you choose to watch the video. Um, so uh, licensing models and building an open source community. That's the title of the talk. So, mm -hmm. and it was quite a short segment. It was yeah, only did, 25 uh, we minutes. Did, we did some half hour sections, which we have this year too. So if you just want to submit a shorter section, you can. This is one that I wish were a little longer actually, because well, they're all going to be short this year because we only have one day. Yeah, that's so, true. So, yeah. So, so, um, so I, I, so basically you'll, you'll hear sort of Eileen make the case against copyleft kind of. Well, so, sort of. So let's, I mean, let's, I, uh, okay. So, so go ahead and take us and we'll discuss it afterwards. Yeah. And if you want to, again, you'll, you'll hear Dan shortly explain where to fast forward to. If you want to go watch the video or you already watched the video. 
to skip this talk recording and go straight to Karen and Bradley's comments, please head to 46 minutes and 40 seconds. That's 46 minutes and 40 seconds. All right, so I am going to introduce our next speaker. Uh, my friend Eileen Evans is uh, Vice President and Deputy General Counsel at Hewlett Packard uh, in charge of cloud computing and open source. And uh, before she went to Hewlett Packard, she was, uh, well, I guess not immediately before, but, but for many years she was at uh, Sun Microsystems where she had a lot of experience in Sun's um, uh, involvement in open source software. And um, she's going to talk about licensing models and building an open source community. Thank you, Richard, appreciate that. So um, my role at HP is a little bit unique in the sense that I lead our open source program office. I'll, I'll speak up. Okay, thank you for letting me know. And, and continue. If you let me know if I um, don't project well enough, Is that, can you hear me now? Okay, I'll try to speak louder. Okay, so my role at HP is, is a bit unique in the sense that I lead our open source program office, uh, which entails like compliance and our external outreach and, and community engagement as well as uh, leading legal support for open source matters. I also lead legal support for cloud, um, but in terms of open source, my role is a bit unique um, within the company. And before, I, I've been leading open source now at HP for a couple of years, and I've been with HP for three years. Um, about six months after coming into HP, I uh, had an opportunity to transfer into the business and do a business role uh, for six months. And that role uh, presented itself in the cloud organization. And it was at that point in time when HP was deciding to go with um, OpenStack as its cloud offering. So I had the opportunity to participate in that decision-making process and then transfer over to the business to do a six-month rotation into the business to really help drive the community engagement and drive our participation in OpenStack. And for me, it, w it was a, a great learning experience because prior to that, my, my role at Sun was in the legal department. And so I had really looked at open source before that primarily from a legal lens. Um, and I'd been with Sun for nearly 12 years and had a, you know, a great experience there working with all kinds of open source projects from Java to OpenOffice to uh, OpenSolaris, uh, across the gamut, MySQL. So it was a great experience, but I'd always sort of looked at things from a legal lens. So for me, transferring into the business, I think, gave me a new perspective on um, and definitely broadened my horizons for the way that I look at open source and the way that I engage with communities. So for me, it was a great learning experience and, and helped prepare me, I think, for the role uh, when I had the opportunity to take over and lead the open source program office. So the, the topic today I'm going to discuss really is around um, licensing models and building communities. So it's, it's kind of tying those two areas of my experience together. And I'm going to try to keep the, the presentation part fairly short because I actually do want to solicit input from you guys, so heads up. So from an agenda perspective, I'm going to talk through sort of what I think at a very simplistic level what you need to build a vibrant and successful open source community. <coughs> and then talk about you know, the open source license and what role that plays um, in building a community. And then I want to kind of look at the lens of the landscape, and I know this is something that Bradley spoke about earlier, really sort of looking at the permissive license and how we're starting to see more projects as permissively licensed projects and see what impact that has and how that's shaping out. And then also I want to solicit input about the, what your thoughts are in terms of you know, sort of why that's happening as well as the, the potential impact of that longer term. So at, at a very simplistic level, 
I believe there's three critical components to build a successful and vibrant open source community. Uh, first and foremost, I think you need a great technology. Um, I also believe you need sound governance structure. And that's something we, sp we spoke about yesterday in the panel, the governance piece of it. And then third, I, I believe that the license also plays a role in that. You need a license that is perceived fair and perceived favorable within the community as well. But I, I mean, I recognize that these three are not created equal. I mean, clearly um, technology is the one that, that is key and the most critical component here. Uh, because without a great technology, the governance model and licensing model are essentially irrelevant. But that being said, I do think that the open source license plays a role in helping to build a community. It plays a role in adoption. I think it, it has an interesting role within that whole ecosystem that I, I want to talk about. Um, and so for the purposes of, of this discussion, and I'm going to tee it up, and I realize I'm going to grossly oversimplify licensing models. Um, and I'm going to grossly oversimplify them to all open source licenses are either copyleft or permissive. And by copyleft, I mean you have a contractual obligation to contribute modifications back to the community. And in permissive, you don't have that contractual obligation. So I, I realize it's a gross oversimplification, but just bear with me as we, as we talk through this, because I do want to get some, some good feedback out of this. So that being said, can a permissively, permissive license be used to build an open source community? The interesting thing is I was, I was grappling with this question about 10 years ago when I was with, at Sun Microsystems. Um, I had the opportunity to help lead our efforts in open sourcing Solaris. And Solaris was Sun's operating system. And it was a, a really key and critical piece of technology for Sun. And at the time when I was grappling with this, I mean, one of the, the business things that we wanted to accomplish there is we wanted to build an open source community around it. So that was one of the objectives in open sourcing. It was to build this community. So we re recognized that the licensing model would play a role in that. And at the time, I was really struggling with this question. And I, I spoke with a number of open source luminaries. I spoke with other lawyers. I looked at what was happening in the community. And I came to the conclusion at that point in time, 10 years ago, that you could not use a permissive license to build a community. And maybe, you know, I, mean, I, I recognize I hadn't been practicing law um, that long at that point in my career, so m maybe I looked at things from more of a black and white perspective. But that's what I believed at that point in time. I believe that you really, in order to build that strong, vibrant community, you needed copy left. And so I came to it from that vantage point. So then I was, I've been struggling with this question recently and thinking, is the same, you know, if I look at this question today, do I believe the same thing? Do I believe today that a permissive license can be used to build um, a vibrant open source community? I think in order to answer that question, I started thinking about, okay, well, how can I help, you know, navigate this and answer this question? And so I started oh, speaking up. Okay, thank you. Speak louder. So to, in order to help answer that question, I wanted to look at sort of what was happening in the licensing model ecosystem in general. And then also what was happening in terms of vendor engagement with those open source projects. And then thirdly, what was happening in terms of contributions to open source projects. So I was kind of looking at all of those in order to help me understand and better answer this question. So in terms of what's happening um, within the licensing landscape ecosystem in general, what I saw is I started looking at various survey sources. I looked at BlockDuck, Flossmole, and Google Code. And what I saw was pretty interesting. 
even though those three survey sources all used you know different methods statistical samples what have you they were all to me either showing and demonstrating or supporting the same general trend that I, I thought was happening within the ecosystem which was there was an increase in permissively licensed projects so again there, what I was starting to, to sort of hear through anecdotal started to see was sort of um, it was supported by the evidence as far as the, these survey sources as well. Now I recognize that this is not to say the GPL is going away anytime soon because it's still, you know, in terms of absolute numbers, it's by far the clear winner. However, I did find it an interesting trend. And so I thought, let me dig a little bit deeper and find out, you know, what else I can glean from this in order to try to help answer these kinds of questions. So in terms of, uh, this was uh, Aaron Williamson. Um, showed this at a recent Linux um, event and I, I found this interesting as well because you know get on, on the github um, part of what are these these projects and again it's it's sort of demonstrating that we're having more and more permissive licenses out there and that's there's sort of this increase in that yes. how do this figures account for forking um, can I see the questions for, for the end okay sure. thank you Thanks. and the next thing I started looking at was vendor engagement um, from with these open source projects because, and again, these, these statistical samples aren't great, but I, I was looking at 451 Group and trying to just, again, grasp a better understanding of what was happening in this, in, this, in this ecosystem. And what I saw was, you know, there's this gradual shift in uh, strong copy left in terms of vendor engagement with these projects. Gradual sh shift up until around 2006. 2006, 2007, we start to see a pretty sharp decline in the hard copy left licenses in terms of vendor engagement. And around the same time period, this 2006-2007 time period, we start to see a, a more significant increase in terms of permissive licenses, in, in terms of the vendor engagement with these projects. It's hard to read these. <laughs> this is over here, number of vendors, and then yeah. those are the years. Sorry for a small, apologies, small you graphics. expressed a, one of these preferences. Yes, in terms of, oh, yes, preferences in terms of participating with projects. Yes, exactly. So the, what do the vendors prefer to engage with? What kind of projects? Yeah, thank you. And I have a small, small font, so from the back, I apologize. Um, and then the, the third thing I looked at was contributions. Contributions in terms of um, how are developers and, and companies contributing to these projects. And for the contribution piece, I looked at a very small sample. I was looking at trying to get create look at some of the similarly situated projects that are new open source projects. Um, so what I looked at in this case was uh, three cloud projects, similarly situated cloud projects, all open source. I looked at OpenStack, CloudStack, and Eucalyptus. So OpenStack and CloudStack, both permissively licensed. Eucalyptus copy left. A caveat and footnote is, is CloudStack actually changed its licensing model in 2012 from a copyleft model to a permissive model. And so as I was kind of digging around that, I also found some interesting statistics around that, which were that the number of contributions and the number of contributors, particularly the number of contributors, there was a pretty significant increase um, in that year and a half period after they made the licensing model change, which kind of was contrary to what I honestly expected. Um, so it was interesting. Um, <laughs> From that time period, it went from 50, approximately 50 contributors to 250. So significant increase there. Um, and then with respect to Eucalyptus, it's kind of what I would have expected 10 years ago, and it's what I expected now, which is basically that um, when you have a copyleft project, you do have contributors, and you do have that sense of community. You're building that, that collaboration, and you're having the contributions back, and witnessed by the number of commits, et cetera. With Apache, 
um, the Apache 2.0 for OpenStack. This was the one I found really interesting because um, I, I'm very involved with OpenStack. Um, I was one of got involved with OpenStack pretty early on within HP, and um, I had the opportunity to help set up the OpenStack Foundation, and then um, I participate uh, as a director on the OpenStack Foundation board as well. So this one I, I'm pretty familiar with from the technology side, but for me it was interesting to look at this from the contributor perspective, in the sense that. I was quite frankly just some, somewhat amazed by the number of contributors, the number of commits, and lines of code contributed here. So again, it's not what I'd expected. Instead, because if I looked at this from where I was looking at the lens that I had 10 years ago, I would have expected um, that the numbers would be much lower. Because I think that's one of the things that, you know, when I was quite frankly um, at Sun and we were open source in Solaris, that was one of my concerns. I was concerned that if we, you know, put the code out there under a permissive license that we wouldn't build a community, we wouldn't get the contributions back. But I think this sort of um, shows that it, it can indeed happen. And I think I'm going to make a, a you know, a, again, this is going to be a very simplification, simplified uh, conclusion here, but I, I, I want to open it up for dialogue and I want to get some feedback on this. Um, from, but so again, looking at the question I asked 10 years ago, today I think I would answer the question differently. And it's, it's, you know, OpenStack is one single example. I recognize there's, there's, you know, many, many open source projects out there. But for me, I'm looking at it through this lens and trying to, to make sense of it all. And I think, again, going back to the original one of, of those components that are needed, you obviously need a great technology, um, which OpenStack is, is a great technology. You also need sound governance structure, which I think the, the project, they took that very seriously and created a very sound governance structure. I think it was a sound governance structure um, before it was turned over to a foundation, too, to be honest. I mean, I think Rackspace did a number of things right in creating a project policy board and, and, you know, and creating that technical meritocracy around the project. But nonetheless, I think under the foundation, it is a sound governance structure with, you know, you've got a foundation, you also have a technical committee that really does run the technical piece of the project. And then the licensing model, I think, helped drive that adoption. Um, but nonetheless, I think, I think permissive licensing licenses can be used to build those kinds of projects um, and to drive that. So to, um, that's, this is my last slide, but I do want to um, go back to a prior slide uh, when I open it up for questions. But I think you had a question first. I'm sorry, first row. Apologize. I was just asking about the um, the slide with the. Can you go numbers, back to that? Yeah. Um, about yeah. how it it was counting forks. Was it counting all of the forks of a particular project as one? Was it yeah, it was. It was. I think it was doing the top level licensing. But the other thing that I remember from the from that survey as well, which I thought was interesting, is because a lot of the um, projects on Get, my understanding is initially they weren't licensed at all. So what they did was they tried to compile, and it was a, a smaller percentage, right? Because they took a, a survey sample of those, and then what they tried to do is, is get the highest level license. But, but it doesn't account for that. So no. So I mean, there's there's probably that piece of, and then the what you were talking about with compatibility and sort of the licensing pieces of it. There's, I think there's multiples of those. And Richard, I think you had a comment there. Well, I think th that was taken from um, Aaron Williamson. It was Aaron Williamson, and yes. And if that was the data that he did using Bossology, yes, it was I using think Bossology someone HP asked him tool. the same question yeah. about whether this accounts for forks. And I don't recall the answer. You were at the talk as well, right? He said, did, he, said he did uh, have some stuff to account for forks. Okay. That was his answer when we was asked. Oh, okay. So, okay. Great. I was just, uh, like, uh, again, for me, it's, I think it's new and it's 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 interesting the these the shift 
Bradley, do you have any comments in light of your um, talk earlier? I mean, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Well, so, so I mean, I, th yeah. I think that your talk sounds to me almost like you're making a, a defense of, yes, you could do a community with permissive licenses, which I, I think is, is accurate. I think that anybody who says you can't is in error. So, so well, I, I believed you couldn't ten years ago. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> my argument would be I think copyleft builds better communities because it's a better constitution. I, I sort yeah. of see it. If you want to talk about governance, I see it that the a permissive license, like the Articles of Confederation, and sorry to be U.S., but the, like the Articles of Confederation, which was a, a very loose thing that was abandoned by the United States in the early days, and the U.S. Constitution, much more like the GPL, it's a stronger binding force. Yeah. Because right. yeah. the Article Confederation was too loose. That's the point. It just it just allows allowed the states to do whatever they wanted. Sometimes bad things for the the whole country. That's my point. Oh, so just, just, I guess this analogy doesn't work. Everybody's looking like I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so, as a developer working yes. in a GPL project, yes. um, the so the, the, the people who take our our project and then make their own products on it mm -hmm. um, are required to push the source. Right. Perhaps on the web website or the patches or things like that. They're not required to try and upstream them. Right. 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 And the fact is that in practice, the thing that drives the, in practice, the people in the core community don't go and take those patches and upstream them themselves. Mm -hmm. And the thing that drives the vendors to upstream the patches is actually having to rebase to new ones. Right. So that's right. that was my, my question too, because that's what I was thinking was yes. driving so, so, so a lot so of in, this so in, in, is in, the technical so debt. Finish my, my yes. I was say was mm -hmm. that um, in normal kind of everyday when when things are not going when things are going well mm -hmm. when things are not going wrong, mm -hmm. um, functionally BSD and GPL essentially act the same. So the only mm -hmm. the only mm -hmm. difference actually is happens when things kind of kind of go to hell and mm. there's a big difference of opinion. Right. Then. Um, if people want to, they can actually take the take the patches and, mm -hmm. and, and upstream them themselves, mm -hmm. or not. Yeah. Right. Does that make right. sense? Right. That that does make sense. And and so d let me ask you a question. Do you think a big piece of this then is because of that technical debt? Because in other words, it just makes it easier to contribute it back. And uh, yeah. So so the okay. yeah, basically the, from the developer's the perspective, debt. So it's, 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 as far as in my observation, yeah. And people can disagree with me if you want, but in my observation, um, the companies that have, you always, if you develop a product, you have to, you know, do local patches because mm -hmm. you're, you need a new product, right? Right. That's to be your specifications. Mm -hmm. The thing that forces you to upstream that, then, is the technical depth you're basing. Okay. Um, so, it's, I, I don't think, in my project, I don't think I've ever seen someone from the community mm -hmm. take a patch set that was published by someone and upstream it themselves. Okay. It's always been the people who wrote the patch themselves upstreaming it. Okay. Um, because of the, the technical debt. Okay. Because of, also because of personal commitment to open, the open source way. Yes. Yes. So. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I've asked my, myself um, if, if, if you could do this comparison. I mean, um, if, if there is a, a vendor who has um, money and, and who is who's going to the to, to support the open source trend and mm -hmm. trying to, to benefit from it that um, that they are of course um, putting a lot of money in uh, building up a very good uh, project infrastructure mm -hmm. and uh, this is also very attractive for for developers and mm -hmm. I think the most developers are, are not really uh, thinking of, of the exact um, license term mm -hmm. um, 
they they are thinking more about the technology and okay. I think everyone has has a bit different uh, motivation and I think when 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 the when the figure of uh, let's say project with uh, um, permissive mm -hmm. licenses is rising yeah. then it's more um, related um, to let's say the, the, the money which are uh, which are um, vendors are putting in open source technology it's a good point too okay thank you I think regarding vendor involvement, you should account uh, for another variable in this. is basically what to say the education of the target community, the education of the experience of the target vendor community. Um, so if you look at IT, I would say uh, many users are well educated right now. They assess open source well and they know right. what the, the value in this is. <coughs> if you look at different communities, if you look at, for example, at uh, the industrial world where I come from, mm -hmm. uh, it's a bit different. And then uh, people are more conservative regarding what they do and what they reveal, what they publish. So in this area, I see uh, the high value of popular licenses that they remind at least the users, uh, the, the companies who are using it, that they have to think about how to deal with this. How yeah. to do their own changes. They have to read it anyway. And I often receive this kind of feedback. Well, we have to publish them anyway, so why not work with upstream? Yes. Work anyway, okay. So now we mm -hmm. can also do it with upstream. Right. So this is a kind of a reminder, basically, and this helps in this area. Okay. There are other areas where we know what to do. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I have a feeling that not, not just uh, you said moving permissive <coughs> licenses. Why, why that's yeah, that's it. I'm curious no, about that as well. It's, it's very easy for developers to start a project and do it in MIT or BSP because then okay. you can just use the platforms with some other license without having to uh, be bound by the license you use. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So okay. Is that well? Is that sort of well thought? I mean, is that the common understanding? Do you think in the developer community? Because that's that's the thing that I find I interesting. The, the company I work for. Yeah. Because we okay. the partner we did it with might not be trusted. So maybe oh. we could fork away or just move away from it and then have our own project, maybe post source it even. Sorry guys. <laughs> and, um, but so I, I think it's just permissive also gives the permission to do whatever you want with it. Right. Right. As a company but also for the development app. Okay. That's thank you. That's very interesting. Thank you. I mean, you have five minutes. Oh, okay. Can so I? Sort of related to that, I, I'm curious how this plays out over time, um, because yes. I think there are certain trends and, um, and different understandings in different communities about licensing, and I was wondering if you looked at sort of this community growth over the life cycle of a project and maybe like, you know, compared, because we looked at, at particular years for particular projects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'd be curious to see how, how it played out over time. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Karen, and that's something I thought about as well. Like how because I, I recognize like right now using OpenStack as, as a single example. Right now it's you know it's a very popular project, it's doing quite well. It, the community and everyone is getting along, right? What happens if that if, if somehow if, at some point in the future that's no longer the case? It's like then I start to think, okay, how would you know how it plays out because it's under Apache versus if they had licensed it under a different licensing model. How would that play out long term? And that's something that um, that I, I'm, you know, very interested to kind of see how this all plays out. But but again, it, I kind of look at it from the perspective of, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I wonder what we're going to see, you know, five, ten years down the road. But it's a really great point because I've thought about that quite a bit. 
Bradley, you're getting a comment about that. Well, like, yeah, and, and also because uh, both We're out of time. Fantasia said my last okay. poem was weird and crazy, so uh, so that analogy doesn't work. But, but, <laughs> but I thought of a better way to, uh, a, a, a concrete example to explain it. I, th I think when you're talking about core, uh, what, what developers consider the core application, right. I think there's not much difference because of the point you were making over there about the not wanting to rebase. Yes. But most software systems these days have some way of putting add-ins uh, of some sort that aren't part of core, a plug-in architecture, mm -hmm. something like that. And that's where copyleft really has value because that's often mm -hmm. a different community. So you have the core mm -hmm. community, which OpenStack has as part of the OpenStack Foundation yes. and so forth. But I know OpenStack, you can do add-on modules and so forth. Right. And that w I would expect, this is pure speculation, yeah. that that community will slowly be a slightly different community. Mm -hmm. And that community will be one mostly of proprietary add-ons. Whereas if OpenStack were GPLs, those add-ons would have to also be GPL. So, so while your main community, the core community, may may make the hum along just great <laughs> right. for indefinitely, mm -hmm. the plugin community may become a proprietary ghetto. That's an interesting point. So are you trying to say there that the license is the best force in to keep the community together? Well, but to keep those ancillary communities, right? I mean, yeah, I mean Blair Wall used to talk about this onion of Pearl, right? And so Pearl was GPL. Do you think OpenStack has other force factors that helps keep our community I don't know, but I've seen it fail in other permissively licensed projects. But I don't know specifically enough about the OpenStack community to say. What do you think? I think there is. Uh, I think if people have enough incentives to be involved with the community, there's so much going on there that being inside the community is just. But you can be both at once, right? You could be developing. If you have a good separation of APIs, you could be off writing proprietary plugins and be part of the core community simultaneously. Yeah, but we don't encourage that behavior necessarily. But it's not that like, we don't but use the license. Everybody, many companies are already doing an open stack. No, what so I'm saying is don't keep the API stable. Yeah. So. That's what LVM says, too. I'm skeptical. <laughs> what drove OpenStack to allow it to become progressive? Well, it was actually before my time, but I, but I can tell you the history. <laughs> um, I'm out of time. Well, uh, Two minutes. I want you to repeat the question before you. Okay. Okay. The, okay. The the question was, what drove OpenStack to choose a permissive licensing model? Um, and it was before my time, before I got involved in the project, because they actually open sourced it in July 2010, and it was a joint project between RAS, um, uh, Rackspace and NASA, federal government. And they actually chose the reason they chose Apache is because they wanted to drive adoption, and they believed by choosing a permissive licensing model, <coughs> it would enhance and drive adoption, um, and increase that. So that was the primary reason. At least that's what I've been told. That piece in history. Actually, so, so there was another reason. Um, there was a lot of criticism of eucalyptus at the time. Oh yeah. I remember from giving that talk at the OpenStack <laughs> Summit uh, last year. Uh, eucalyptus, which you had on that slide, eucalyptus had GPLv3 yes. and a very t a model uh, controlled by one company. Mm -hmm. um, at the, the predecessor of CloudStack was very similar. It used GPLv3 yes. initially, and I think OpenStack wanted to distinguish itself from these companies that had business models that were being heavily criticized at the time. Uh, what were called open core business models. So I think that was part of it as well. That's an excellent point, Richard. So You're right. Yes. Partially a reactionary, as opposed to being done on the merits. No, it was a political act. It, okay. I, I yeah. would say progressive because these these um, uses of GPLv3 by I mean it's related to that point of, that the 451 group made about yes. um, single vendors, uh, m multiple vendors engaging in projects <laughs> under permissive license. Yeah. The eucalyptus was not a multiple and multiple vendor project. Neither mm -hmm. was Cloud CloudStack or mm -hmm. Cloud.com. These were very much controlled by one company. Um, I mean, Rackspace had that role to some degree in, in OpenStack, but it was uh, evolving towards a multi-vendor product, right. and, and I think that was what their goal was on some. So, so we're out of time, but let's let Eileen get the last word because it's yes. her talk. So, do you want to sum up? Thank anything? you. <laughs> <laughs>
It was interesting that Eileen asked me for permission after what she said. She almost asked me permission that it was okay that she said it. Did you notice that? She was no, I of, didn't notice she was that. Sort of like, she was sort of like, well, did, Bradley, do you agree with this? Do you think that that's correct? Did she? Yeah. Oh. I, well, I, I mean, the thing is, is that um, I, 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 I'm dubious about some of the data she used. Uh, she had a graph there from the 451 group and, and all of those kind of industry so-called industry analyst groups uh they're mm. they're paid by people to come to conclusions that the people want to hear and so i i'm dubious about their data well and this is more my question about sort of how this plays out over time because looking at OpenStack is not necessarily instructive in well, the long run not only that, the, the, the wondering of how many companies are involved is sort of this silly sort of question to ask. Most free software projects are relatively small. I think the, the whole thing with OpenSSL that came out was how many people rely on OpenSSL and don't contribute, right? And so there's a permissively licensed non-copylefted project that was in peril, basically, because it didn't have enough interest, yet everybody was participating, but nobody was participating, right? if you know what I mean. Whereas nobody was funding development work of it initially, and it was widely used, and when, only when there was a complete crisis did anybody pay attention to it. And so the, the, the question I'm more interested in is not necessarily will, will there be a community out, sort of what you're saying, will, will there be a community for a long period of time when it's not the most exciting, hottest thing? Well, yeah, I mean, and that's what one of the people in the audience asked, you know, that, that the issue is really what happens when things go bad, and that copyleft protects us in the case where things go really bad. Um, and I thought that was a really um, astute comment from someone in the audience. I don't even remember who it was. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think, I think the, and, and this was my comment to Eileen as well. That the this idea that that OpenStack is is testing this, we we won't know until we're further along. Right. That was my. That was, that was the point of what I was saying. Yeah. I, yeah. Just now, but I said I think no I said in the it. room. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, I forgot. I'm sorry. It was a long time. No, ago. no problem. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I mean, I think, I think that. This is uh, the other thing is Eileen's coming from a perspective of being at a company and sort of uh, she was really talking about her experience at Sun, where Sun was trying to figure out how to engage in free software and felt that it had to write its own copyleft licenses to be engaged, mm -hmm. which was a, a completely wrongheaded anyway. Um, but then the question of if can a company ever engage in a non copyleft community? I think OpenStack, I, I think I said this at the, at the day, that OpenStack's an anomaly in, in how it happened and what happened with it. Um, the, those types of things don't happen that often. Uh, I mean, I don't think we'll see anything like OpenStack again ever uh, in the sense mm. of a code base that was particularly important to a particular industry fad at that moment when it was released, right? What? How often do mm. fin mostly finished code bases get released at a moment that compl completely releases free software at a moment when it's an industry fad? It just doesn't happen that often. Yeah. I mean, what I think is really interesting is Eileen's personal perspective. I mean, having been a lawyer at Sun, and she talks about what she thought then and how, you know, and how she thinks now about copyleft versus um, more permissive licensing. And I, 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 you know, looking, I'm interested in, you know, in playing this back for her in 10 years and seeing what she thinks about it. Well, and the thing is, is that Open OpenStack is primarily not a free software community. I mean, that's that's sort of the thing that I'm most critical on this point, is that OpenStack is primarily a common core code base that people write proprietary extensions to. Right. And that's primarily how it's used. So it's not really a uh, the, the the primary community of OpenStack is 
is proprietary. It's almost a standards committee in some sense. I know there's a lot of code. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's disingenuous for me to say that. But on the other hand, it's not like any company is running pure OpenStack without proprietary add-ons. Every single major contributor to OpenStack has its own proprietary fork of OpenStack that it's maintaining, including HP. Right. So I, I don't really see that as, as under, I mean, it's certainly an open source community. Is it a free software community? I don't think so. It's it's design it's open source designed to enable proprietary extensions. Well, I think there are areas of the OpenStack community that are open source communities. Like I, I think it's actually such a big community at this point that it consists of a lot of things. But I think you're right that there's a big proprietary component to it as well. Yeah, well, I mean, all of it's open source in the sense that open source is about how do you exploit free software for financial gain, including proprietary add-ons, right? Wait, I mean, that's, what? As a philosophical matter, companies uh, are into open source. That, okay, so, but you're not you're not drawing this free software versus open source software distinction. It is a distinction. That's you, the point. But it's re it's defined differently every other day by so many people. Please don't. Please don't confuse things further by adding yet another definition of what open source might be versus free software, because there's it's just I'm not so adding another definition. I'm using the definition that's there. Right, open source is a 1984 style new speak term to rebrand free software to make it more friendly to the power and, structure and and the open and the OSI open source criteria for licenses are a distinct criteria for, and yet they should overlap completely when evaluated correctly. So it's just, it's very confusing. And people think that you mean copyleft versus permissive licensing. People think you mean all kinds of things. It's just, it's, well, it's not helpful. Well, it's because people conflate all these issues. That's the point is they conflate all these issues. And, and open source is a term designed to, to encourage people to conflate all these different issues together. It's designed to make it look like it's community when it's not. A, a, a proprietary fork of a free software program is the opposite, anti-community behavior. It's anti-social behavior. But you can't deny the fact that most that people, source. when they hear about this world, they hear the term open source because that is the term that is more widely used. Because and people the companies talk about are the ideals of open source software. I know this very well from, especially from my time in the GNOME Foundation, where people were talking about living up to the ideals of the open source movement. And what, so it just, it just confused. And then I, at the same time, I hear people say, oh, well, you know, a, the a BSD style license is obviously it's not a free software license. It's only an open source license. And then I hear there's so many confused areas oh, that reason, have nothing. The, the, the person who said, the, the, so, so let's take, for example, the people who conflate copyleft and copyleft is equaling free software and non-copy is equaling open source. Those people are onto something in the sense that people, the, the, the two things are the same, that the basically both open source and non-copyleft have a thing in common, which is about making yourself popular, powerful, and wealthy over software freedom. There are people who choose permissive licensing for idealistic reasons. Because they value power, adoption, popularity some, over some software freedom. Some believe truly that being free means having the ability to do whatever you want with the software and that that adding any kinds of requirements or reciprocity or anything else is restriction it's a li libertarian argument that companies should control your life that we should we should make sure that the most powerful people run society that's a standard libertarian argument that non-copyleft people who are ideological they're ideological in a libertarian sense if i agree you with you go but and companies you, love libertarians if you go and you listen to an early uh 
an, an early uh, software freedom law show, you have an, an impassioned defense of the uh, of the permissive advocates and their love of freedom. <laughs> um, I just I, I really from being a lawyer to various BSD communities, I I really learned that this is potentially an ideological choice. It's not for everyone, but it can be. And I just think that by drawing these distinctions on terminology, we confuse everybody. We don't help anything. And then we're at the, at the end of the day, nobody knows what the hell we're talking about. The reason nobody knows what we're talking about is because companies want us to be confused. They want to co-opt software freedom for their own power and profit motive. And that's, and that's really what's happening, I think, in OpenStack, right? I mean, OpenStack is a game of corporate manipulation around a code base that happens to be licensed under a non-permissive free software license. That's the center of what's happening in that community, in my view. Um, and, and, and it's a dangerous, complicated community. If you look at the whole fight over the CLA question in OpenStack, which happened after uh, Eileen gave this talk, obviously it would have been the primary thing we were asking about if it happened before, um, because that's an example of people who are in the community, individuals. I can't find an individual who's not supporting a corporate position who says they, that the CLA is good for the community. Everybody who supports CLA is the companies, and yet OpenStack still has a CLA. It's still doing what the companies want it to do. So it, it's it's a it's a pwned community, in that sense. It's owned by the corporations that control it, both in the in the nonprofit. Well, that's why sense. OpenStack is a trade association. Right. I mean, I'd say not, not only in the nonprofit well, sense, it's a trade association. That's why it's so it's attempting owned by to be the a trade association. Or attempting to be a trade association because, and it's appropriate structure for it because the entire quote community unquote is a community of for-profit companies. I, it's who not want the to entire community. The thing is, is that everybody else is ba who's involved in is basically being duped. There, I don't know anybody who is actually like an OpenStack advocate in a community sense. Um, now that Luik doesn't work on OpenStack anymore. Um, <laughs> but but I, mean, I do think there are some other people. But that, anyway, this is besides the point from my Actually, stock. I don't think it's beside the point because her argument was you can create a community around a non-copyleft project. That it, it's, it's community compatible in the sense that she didn't previously think it was. I think that the community she's talking about creating is a community of businesses. And I don't actually mm. care if you can create a community of businesses around a free software project. Mm. I want there to be commercial activity around free software, but I don't care if if some businesses like it or don't like it, right? I mean, I believe in, uh, in software freedom, take it or leave it, in the sense that if the company wants to do proprietary stuff, I'd rather see them go away, right? And so OpenStack is this tricky spot where companies are, are giving enough code upstream to keep the upstream alive, but their real goal is to make proprietary forks. And I, I, I'm, I'm actually frightened that it might last a long time, right? Mm. If, if that lasts a long time, it becomes the, the complete co-option of principle. And that's why I bring up the terminology distinction in, in this, because it will be open source, but it won't be a community of people doing software sharing. It'll be a community of people who've got a common code base that happens to be free software that the primary activity around it is to proprietary add-ons i don't disagree with you about your substantive point but i it's still your terminology point is driving me crazy i just completely disagree with it i think yeah. it's confusing and i think it's uh wrong and bad 
Yeah, I, well, I think that I don't think it's bad. I, I can't say how it's wrong, um, but in the sense that I think it's wrong because it makes, first of all, it makes newcomers feel bad. It's very hard to figure out what the yeah, right I'm, language is to use in the right circumstance and with whom. Yeah. It just sets unwary traps for people, and it, I, it just, it, I just think it's completely. Well, I think you're talking more about the the advocacy style that others have used on terminology than you are just about the terminology question. No, I mean, I just think when you start to start saying open source is this and free software is that, when it's drawing distinctions where many different distinctions have been drawn over time that all conflict with each other and confuse people, I just think that's... Uh, well, I mean, there's ways to use... I've said there's ways to use copyleft that's not in free software principles. What Oracle does with copyleft is is surely open source, but not in the spirit of software freedom, because what they're trying to do is manipulate people with copyleft to buy proprietary licenses, right? So there's a great example of copyleft being used in an open source way and people love to tout oracle's commitment to new commitment to open source and and uh and eucalyptus well it kind of doesn't exist anymore but whatever i mean eucalyptus's commitment to open source they talked about everywhere martin mikos has touched now he's touching hp a little scary um bringing this business model this disgusting business model that abuses copyleft to people and and and, and those types of things are what is a problem and it's all done under the banner of open source it's all and everything's it's all, done under the banner of open source my point exactly it's it's a uh, meaningless I mean, phrase so we shouldn't use it anymore right we shouldn't use it to mean anything we I'd can't rather, back out of it sure we can we can say that we i don't I, I i'm happy to say that open source is just a marketing term that companies use it's like green i mean look i i explained that i i, I do mention that that open mm. source is a marketing term but the problem is is that we're so far gone in it that it's, people it's, will have no idea what we're talking about. But it's the, the whole idea of an open source community. It's it's just like green. It's like it's like saying your product is green. There's no certification. There's no knowledge. You can put a green product on your. But sometimes people use open source to mean free software. And sometimes, sometimes people, people use, use green... open source to mean legitimately the things that we want to support and promote. And sometimes people use green, and their product really is environmentally good, right? But it doesn't mean that every product you see that says green on it is actually helping the environmentalist movement. Just so, not everything that says it's open source is actually helping the free software movement. Well, there's plenty of things that are free software that don't help the free software movement, right? I'm not sure what you mean. Like, I mean I, the way I'm using the term, I'm basically saying that, that, that it's about the principles of software freedom, right? And lots of things under open source are designed to make proprietary add-ons. Um, to encourage proprietary. I, I don't have any problem with OpenBSD in part because they hate proprietary add-ons almost more than... Well, that's what I was talking about like, before, yeah. but you discounted that argument at the time. But the so point, I, I guess I'm now I'm thoroughly confused. But they're doing it under the banner of their project, the, the, the OpenBSD project. And they call no. it open source. I think they call it both, actually. I mean... Drawing the line is not meaningful. My, my point is, the line I'm trying to draw is between between corporate marketing and an actual community movement, right? right? And that I agree with. Right. And 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 I think I think that when we talk when we hear community, and this is related to the community manager aspect of things, right? This is related to this idea that that term's been co-opted as well. This idea that that uh, that's conscripting individuals to volunteer for a corporate mission. Uh, the, the canonical limited business model um, is is a disturbing manipulation of free software as well, and I think I think there are so many places where term and governance the term governance is being abused in this way. There's so many terms now that companies have gotten a hold of and they've 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 contorted and twisted, 
And so it's very difficult to deal with turn. I think that's why we're both about something. We wake up to find that it's being used to talk about something wholly different. And the company's control. I mean, because we live in in a in a 1984 like scenario where the companies control the language, and they're 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 taking words we use and and co-opting them. And so we have to find words that they refuse to co-opt. Right. That's kind of the issue, is that we have to use words that no company will co-opt hmm. because they're so radical. I mean, that's that's sort of what the point is. I agree with you that that that's that trying to. To, to define your own terms is difficult. Um, but the, I mean, this is exactly the kind of thing that people like Noam Chomsky and others talk about, the, the way that the entire debate and discussion is structured. The idea that we're talking about, can you have a community, which is really just a community of companies, be something? And I, it, it, the thing is, I'm not actually opposed to a community of companies, right? I'm not actually opposed to companies that want to get together and do something together. It's not wrong on its face. It's only wrong when the goal of those companies is to make proprietary software. And that's when I have an issue. And so that's why I have an issue with OpenStack is because the goal of the companies involved with OpenStack, primarily, most of them, nearly all of them, uh, is to take OpenStack and put it into a proprietary product. And that's the issue I have. If their goal was OpenBSD's goal, right? If they were, if they were saying, no, 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 we don't want any proprietary thing anywhere near OpenStack. And if you make an, if you make a proprietary fork of OpenStack, we're going to start a letter writing campaign against you, which is what OpenBSD does, right? They don't, they, they have the, the, what would I call it once? The emotional copy left, right? Mm -hmm. They write, they write letter campaigns to complain to companies that proprietarize OpenBSD. So uh, they want the software free, just like copyleft advocates do. That's a different, that's a free software community in that sense that I'm talking about. It's a community that wants their software to be free I mean, I think and never I, wants it not to be free. I definitely agree with you about the difference between a community made up of companies with particular interests and, mm. um, you know, and other communities. So I, I, I mean, I, I guess I agree with you substantively on most of these points. Yeah. And so, and so I, th I think that, that while, I mean, I think, I think somebody like Eileen in our community is important to, to basically be a communication point between with the way these companies are thinking about this stuff and how it interacts with our community. Um, I think that's what Eileen's actually trying to do. Um, uh, yeah, I've heard, I've heard rumors that, that people, uh, that some people who are high up in the open source industry refuse to go to Fosdem because it's quote, too dirty, unquote. Really? Uh, yes. I, I huh? heard a, a major, a major person uh, who's considered an open source person say that he doesn't go to Fosdem because it's too dirty. Now I do have to say, that Fosdem is a little dirty, well, in an actual clean versus dirty kind of way. I don't, I don't know what you. I mean, it's I university. Will tell you, it's like a lot of students around. Like, like right, anywhere I'll, you find I, a lot I'm, of students. I'm hesitant to bring this up on the podcast, but I will for the sake of this discussion, <laughs> which is that I went to Fosdem when I was still breastfeeding my daughter, and there was really no place for me to go other than the ladies' bathroom, you know, to. Anyway, was it was dirty. Likely, yeah. Like, I basically wasn't sure where to put things down because everything was gross. So, like, from a, like a legitimate clean versus dirty perspective, it can be dirty. I don't know. They don't but, seem any worse than so university they may have bathrooms met, that I saw in the past, right? I, mean, I have been to many universities that have been much, much cleaner. And because it's such a small facility and there's such a high volume of people, the areas that are well-trafficked get very dirty very quickly because wow. they don't have a lot of – like the food area around the food truck, there's food everywhere. Like it does get dirty. From a just so it, the person may not have been speaking in metaphorical terms. They may have just been speaking in like physical – it can be gross. Not everywhere. Okay, so I, I went to Woodstock 94. 
which was dirty, <laughs> right? Because there were overflowing porta potties and that sort of thing. Like I, Fosdem is nowhere near that level of uh, you know the bathroom that hasn't had a visit in a while. I've been in hotels where but like the contrast, bathrooms are overwhelmed. Contrast with the universities that Libra Planet has been in, they've all been very very clean. Now, admittedly, in the ladies' room, it's a very interesting situation because generally there are so many fewer women than men that there aren't that many women going into the ladies' rooms, and so it sort of depends. Like the one near in Fosdem, there's one that's close to the main area, and that one gets some traffic. But elsewhere, they're they're much cleaner. So it sort of depends. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, is that, uh, I don't know. I, to refuse to go to a conference because the, the well, bathrooms are a little Right. Dirty. I mean, I don't refuse I mean, to go, but I understand if someone were kind of like a neat, like a clean freak, it I'm would be very freak. off-putting. I them. I mean, I take Purell with me. I take Purell with me when I travel all the time. But I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I thought it was a pretty well, for telling us, comment of, of this expect, expectation I don't of think it's as conferences in, in, in beautiful, nice hotels, which I've been to conferences in beautiful, nice hotels that are, that are immaculately kept. I've been to conferences where there was a, a, a bathroom attendant, where you know, the guy who just stands there to hand you a towel. Uh, I don't think it's as telling as you might think that it is, is um, all. Like it, I'll tell you off the air who it was. You won't be surprised. But um, I think I know who it is just from you telling the story. <laughs> yeah, but. but the thing is, is that, is that I, think, I think Eileen's willingness to go to a free software conference I, I, I think, and, and, and try to talk to this community. I mean, she wants to engage. I, I think that's her goal mm-hmm. inside HP is to try to engage. And I think the, the message I'm trying to give her as well, is, I think I said it during the talk, is that the, this, the issue of if they're proprietary forks, it's not really a free software community in my view. Like, if the primary goal is to make proprietary forks. Well, there can be proprietary forks, but those might be coming out of a different kind of community. It's just when there is no other community. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. right. I mean, the OpenBSD, I think, is the great example where, where you have a community that demands the software back and really has no interest in interacting with the proprietary community in the sense that they want them to have the right to make proprietary software, but they don't really want to interact with them. They don't want proprietary drivers, they, all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's, it's a great example of, I guess what you were saying, of a, of a principled non-copyleftic community. But they, the funny thing is they don't really, they, they, they have these principles about what the license should say, but that's just a matter of tactics. I mean, we've always said in the copyleft world that it's a matter of tactics what is in the uh, what is in the the license and what the license requires? Uh, the goal is is the the freedom of users. And so, anyway, I, I guess we belabored this point too much. I yeah. Suppose. But, Sorry, everyone. But I, I think I think that what Eileen, all they love, our listeners like this. <laughs> Uh, but I, 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 I mean, I would, I want. We've encouraged Eileen to uh, apply to this year. I hope she gives another talk. I even made some suggestions to her about about talks mm-hmm. that I'd like to see her give. I thought this was excellent. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I think that, uh, I think that's the piece that this, this is the future of where we're we're at in our community. This interaction between companies and community, uh, the the community I think of of individual developers who want software freedom. We're, we're, they're not going to. The companies are not going to go away, and and we, this was sort of we inevitable. We don't want them to go away. Not ex- we want them to change their behavior, but um, I would rather them go away if they refuse to change their behavior in some sense. But um, the, the 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 fact of the matter is, the goal of free software is to write useful code that gives people software freedom, which means that companies are going to come and use it, and improve it, and want to do things with it, and. The more that happens, the more difficult it becomes to have an actual free software community in, in the usual sense, because the corporate communities are now very loud. And you look at things like Linux Foundation, where the even in the copyleft space, the loudest voices in Linux are for-profit companies, not the individual developers. Yeah. 
And they built a trade association called the Linux Foundation to basically make themselves even louder. And OpenStack is even worse. Which because, does represent their interests. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. but OpenStack is even worse because it came out, it was that way from the beginning. At least Linux has this history that can recover a little bit. And there are some older school people in the community that can speak up. And some newer school people who are quite vocal. On the other hand, they're not the ones that are hurt because they don't have megaphones like the Linux Foundation does. Hmm. I mean that's the issue, and I think that's I think that's the world we face now. Uh, it's it's the it's the you know I, I sort of think of it as like a, a science fiction thing, like the rise of the trade association. I don't like know. There are definitely a lot of trade challenges. association coming at us to take over the the, the what was our community. It's certainly um, more dramatic when you describe it that way, but I do think there are some real some real challenges. Open source two, the <laughs> rise of the trade association. And I think that's it. That's we. So I'm gonna make that movie. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thank you all for listening and to our our ranty argument about whatever we were just <laughs> arguing about. <laughs> and uh, we'll we'll try to do a few more of the Faustin talks. We're gonna we're gonna pick and choose. We, we don't have a lot of time to complete them all, so we'll try mm -hmm. to pick and choose a few that that we want to make sure our listeners hear. Reason Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Reason Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Reason Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica, and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Reason Freedom website, faith.us. That's faif.us. Conservancy is petitioner. The petitioner, the right. petitioner um, kind of like a plaintiff, but it's not a lawsuit, so it's not a plaintiff. Um, and what was the title of the talk? I don't. Do you have it up? It was a. Uh, it was no, basically about. Let's just keep that up. I, you had the talk up moments no, ago. No, I had to close the browser though because. Okay. This is, well, anyway, the talk was a, about. This is live internet searching. <laughs> um, well, should I we wait or should I say what the talk was about? Uh, say what the talk was about because we can't wait because it's going to take me out to the wireless network back. You didn't tell me how to do this. Uh, okay. Um, anyway, <laughs> the, the <laughs> I wasn't expecting this. The talk, which I, I thought was quite good, was um, was a, a talk about.